Hi, this is Caitlin McFarland. And this is Emily Gibson. And we are the co-founders of ATX Television Festival. And you're listening to the TV Campfire. Emily's two weeks till Christmas. How many Christmas presents have you bought? Four. <laughs> That's probably more than I've bought, counting in my head. Yep. Yep, Ugh. definitely more. You know what you should get? Well, maybe not you, but you know what our listeners should get? for people for Christmas? What? Badges of the festival. (laughs) That's such a great idea. Or a wristband because we've announced programming now. Yes, we have. Even though it's still quite a few months away, we, for the first time in a few years, Mm -hmm. had a pretty big announcement a couple weeks ago. Yeah. I'm very excited. I would still say we've, if you go and look at our website, it is like 4%, 7% of the overall programming. So don't get upset yet, but be excited by. Okay, I'm going to work backwards. Okay, great. We did launch our pitch competition, which is going to be super, is one of my favorite things at the festival to watch. So submissions are open if you are interested in that. But we announced an Oz retrospective, the return of Tom Fontana. Who we love. And others and others will be joining him. I'm particularly excited that Dean Winters is confirmed for it because for those of you at home that don't know, he plays a little commercial character named Mayhem and it's maybe my favorite commercial. (laughs) And I've decided that maybe we should have like a happy hour with Mayhem kind of like play on something. I love it. Just so you know. We're doing a screening of a never picked up pilot, LA Confidential. We are doing a justified writer's room reunion with one of our favorite people in the entire world. Graham Yost. Advisory board member Graham Yost. It's five years since it ended, 10 years since it started. And then we are doing a parenthood reunion, which is also five years since Yay! Yeah. I did think you have been saying parenthood's the first reunion that we're doing that was also current programming at the festival. But Justified is too. You know, I actually had that thought after I kept saying that. Uh-huh. And I think, because Justified, we did do... Did it twice. Twice. It was, I think the reason I wasn't really counting it wrongly is because they were smaller amounts of people that came with it, where I feel like Parenthood, we did many different ways with many different yeah, people, and now we're bringing it all together. But it is very true. Both of them were current while they were on air, and, and now, now we're doing different forms of reunions, which is amazing. It's super fun. And we're doing them in two very different ways. So Justified is, as we said, writer's room reunion. And my God, this group is so awesome. We knew that they were coming in August and they all signed on. I think they beat Ugly Betty. They like <laughs> all wrote us back in 24 hours and we're like, I'm in. I and, love it. And they're all like running shows now and, you know, kind of have gone on to do not better things, but like <laughs> continued to like grow their own things, their own things from staff writers on. And it's just it's such a freaking delight to hear them all sort of getting excited amongst themselves. It's my personal goal to get a bourbon sponsor, sponsor some other happy hour. So we got a mayhem happy hour and we got a just right happy hour. Can the bourbon sponsor also just sponsor our lives? Yes. Yes. Okay, that, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. Excellent. Yep. If they came on now, that'd be really great because it's cold outside. <laughs> bourbon is the winter drink of choice. And then parenthood is also... You know, as you said, we've done it in a couple of different ways. It was at our very first year, which is also very sweet yep. in my own being of, of nostalgia. Um, but it, they also have came on pretty quickly and were, seem very excited to be coming and have never come in this group. Well, it's fun because I think 
half of them ish. I just made up that number. Yeah. Have been and the other half have not, which is also really fun. Yeah. And we're doing it as a script reading and then a panel. So I think it'll be a fun sort of, we're going to use the word fun a lot. Guys, it's going to be a, a lot <laughs> it's of gonna fun. It's going to be fun, although you're going to cry the entire time because it's parenthood and that's just <sighs> what happens. Have, okay, you're going to judge me. I'm, yep, I'm, I'm going to judge you, but go ahead. I'm not, I'm not done with season two. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm Can like, two, I'm like two thirds done with season so, two. So what, like a month ago, I, I decided, you know what? I'm going to start rewatching parenthood to get ready for the festival. Great. So I watched, I think, one or two episodes that first week. Well, was it one or two? Well, I've seen two episodes, so it may have been two weeks <laughs> okay. worth of my rewatch. So start. in a month, you've watched two, is what you're saying. And you've watched almost two seasons, and that just feels right on par. Yeah. Well, it started, just so we're aware, is I couldn't download episodes on Hulu and Netflix onto my computer because they don't allow it. It had to be on an app or something. And for some reason, I had the Parenthood pilot in my iTunes, like from, like, Oh, that's so a weird. very long time that ago. That is funny. And so when we were flying back from New York, I was like, I'm going to watch this pilot and cry on a plane, which did happen. And then season one is only 13 episodes, 12, yeah, or, thir- yeah, 12 yeah. or 13. Now, season two is in the 20s, but I'm only 17 episodes <laughs> into it. <laughs> Crosby got- just did a very bad thing. So you may or may not finish tonight. Oh, uh, this week. Yeah. Tomorrow is, night. I will say it is also... All I watched this weekend. Like, I, I have nothing else to show for myself. I just, it, Friday, I came home and poured a bourbon to be on par <laughs> and watched like four episodes of Parenthood because I was just like, this is where we're living now. Like, you know what? Living with the Bravermans, yeah. there's so many worse places and not a lot of better places that you could be. No. And so, just so you guys at home know, you could come be a part of the Braverman reunion or watch the Braverman reunion and it's going to be great. And so you should get your tickets now. Yes, there is a promo code in the show notes. Yes. So yes. be sure to check that out. And then this is our last podcast. Mm-hmm. Forever. For, <laughs> da, da, da. for a bit. For 2019. Definitely for 2019 and probably a little into the spring of 2020. Yes. It's our last season eight release as that well. That is correct. Yes. So whatever we come back with, stay tuned. Uh, We may do some more Inside ATX or some original conversations leading into the new year or some re-releases, but we've enjoyed being able to release these so steadily. I think this was the first year we did this. We had a plan. (laughs) We stuck to the plan. We executed the plan. We (laughs) ate a lot of candy along the way. Uh It was great. Yeah. We did well. And stay up with the Insta stories. Tell us about your candy. And then obviously, if you didn't watch, I mean, we already did it, but Emily has told us on Insta story what her Thanksgiving meal looked like. Yep. And close to Christmas, she'll show you whatever I got her. (laughs) Everyone is waiting in anticipation. I feel the suspense. Bated breath. But today's release, without further ado, because you've gotten this far, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. It feels like it's been a journey for all of us. Yep. Is The Female Gaze, which is moderated by Tara Ariano of the Extra Hot Great podcast and has Tanya Siracho from Vita, Kim Raver, representing a movie she directed, Tempting Fate. Joy Blake, who's a writer on Outlander, and Jenny Bix, who is the creator of Men and Trees, but also obviously wrote on Sex and the City and many other things that you love dearly. And I was also trying to remember how this panel came about because it feels like maybe all of our panels are at least 
through a female gaze. That is very true. That's what happens when festivals basically run by five women. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is. It is. It just is. Definitely programmed by five women. (laughs) Very true. But I think it did come out of some of our, like, seeing a lot of our programming and what kind of conversation could we have about, you know, the object or subjectivity of women and what happens when they're writing, directing, starring in things and telling stories about women. Well, and I think it really stems from for many, many, many years, Hollywood told stories through the male gaze. Even before, I mean, paintings, oh, yeah. renaissance, paintings, like books, everything. <laughs> everything. It was just that it was the way it was. It's funny. I'm watching Dickinson mm-hmm. on Apple I've TV seen one Plus, episode. And it's so interesting that she, I mean, everyone knows this, but can't publish anything mm-hmm. under her name being a female. A lot of that comes from her father and just the way society is, but how hard it was for women to get their stories out there. And that continues way into the 1900s mm-hmm. and late in the 1900s in Hollywood. So many writers were males and directors especially were and mm-hmm. still are males that so many of the stories we watch, even when they have great females, are still a little bit skewed from the male gaze. Mm-hmm. So what is that like? How does a narrative change when a female actually gets to tell a female story? Yeah. Because it's that, what's that test? Oh, I want to say Biter Meinhof, which nope. is totally different. no. no. It's uh, Bechtel test. Yes, the Bechtel so test. Give it that a B. Yeah, you got it. Thank you. The Bechtel test of like, do two women have a conversation? Just two women, like no men in the conversation, and have a conversation not about men. Yep. There, I think there's other things that can be checked off, but that's the main. That's one. the main because yeah. even when women were the only ones on screen, oftentimes they were talking about a man or it was about getting a man, and so this idea of what happens when women become the subject instead of the object and have conversations about being people or the things that they want to accomplish. And I think this was a really fun representation on a panel that included writers, directors, actors, producers, all from different types of shows and things like that. Spoiler alert, love Kim Raver. Like, she just won my heart, like, in general. So much. I mean, not to discount Tanya or Joy or Jenny, (laughs) but I had never met Kim before. Fair. So I already loved the other ones. You know what? I think that is a fair assessment. Great. Thank you. (laughs) No offense taken. (laughs) But with that, uh, we hope everyone has a lovely holiday season, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Make sure that you are following along on our Twitter and Instagram at ATX Festival. Mm -hmm. You can also subscribe to the festival's newsletter. Uh, which you go to atxfestival.com and we'll be sending updates on what happens next with the TV campfire. But mm-hmm. we thank you for listening and we'll be back in 2020. So with that, here is The Female Gaze. Thank you. Hello. Such a great crowd. Thanks for coming out on a Sunday morning. Uh, I am Tara Ariano from the Extra Hot Grape podcast, also an editor-at-large at primetimer.com. I can't improve on Leah's intro, so I'm just going to bring out our panelists and we can get started. First with Jenny Bix, the creator of Men and Trees. Uh, next, Joy Blake, uh, formerly a writer on Outlander. Kim Raver, the director of the upcoming Lifetime movie, Tempting Fate. And the creator of Vita, Tanya Soracho.
Thank you all for being here. Um, I'm going to start with just a survey question. We can start at the end and work our way down. How many, for the projects that you're here to talk about today, how many network or studio executives that you were working with were women? Oh, oh, wow. Okay, which, which, which project are we talking Let's about? Let's say for men and trees. Oh, uh, not many. Not many. Maybe I would say at the network, maybe, maybe one. And at the studio, I had, I had two. Okay. Yeah. About those same numbers for Outlander, yeah. Uh, I, I'm kind of an anomaly, I think. <laughs> anomaly. Um, because in Shondaland, it is mostly women. Uh, yeah. Um, and then, but that, but having that is also what led me to be able to um, take my project over. And I was like, okay, where are the women? So I went to Lifetime, and I have to say there was a lot of women there too. Tanya Lopez and... Um, so again, I'm, I'm an anomaly because on the majority of my other shows, you know, maybe like one woman. Um, on Vida, we only have one covering executive. I only have to deal with one person. And she is Marta Fernandez. You can drink. <laughs> I always talk about her. There's like a drinking game. <laughs> because so a woman, only a woman. Um, has. I mean, I know there's male bosses up there, but I only have to sort of answer to her, get notes from her. It's, you know, one person. But I know in your case, there's a lot more authority behind the camera on the set that are, that's held by women. Uh, the, because it's all, yeah. See, I've built, um, I've, and I talked about this weekend, I've built, it's all Latina directors. My DPs are female. My editors are female. Every department head is female. All my writers except one is a cis male. Everybody else is a Latina. So not just, they're also brown women. Yeah, right. So how does it change? And I worked in Shondaland, and I remember... Seeing, seeing that and being like, oh, I can do that if I ever get my thing. So it was a great experience to be in I that. I know, that yeah. is really, there's this uh, medical term that I've kind of um, taken to heart for me, and it's uh, when they're teaching interns, their thing is uh, see one, do one. I was like, oh, I'm gonna use that, see one, do one. And I think Gina Davis says, you know, see one, be one. Mm -hmm. But when you have uh, those examples, it's kind of like a light bulb, you're like, Oh, there's a female, you know, DP and you know, editor, and like, oh, I can do this. And so, I think that's also what's so important. Or you know, women of color, or you know, just the the inclusion then is the example, and you actually see the possibilities. So for Joy and Jenny, since it sounds like you worked with fewer women, like up the chain, how is it? What is the notes process like when you're dealing with? male executives, how much do you have to sort of explain backstory or bring them along to right. where to you're be, at? To, to be clear, because you asked about Men and Trees. I'm sorry. Which is like 2007. Right. Um, now I, too, create environments where it's mainly women um, and uh, try to find environments where I'm working with mainly female executives, if possible. Um, so I wouldn't say that there's... Like on Sex in the City, we were six women and one guy. Um, and But the person running the network was a man. And that's what I think we're still dealing with now is at the very top, it is still male. We're getting better, but it's still there. So your question was, how do you deal with notes from men specifically? See, I don't see it as so kind of black and white. And I think it's dangerous to do that where you start to say, okay, men are gonna give a note a certain way, women are gonna do, men are gonna write a certain way, because then it gets dangerous. 
Because then we're back where it's, oh, you're a woman, you can only write women. Or you're a man, you can, if you're a good writer, you're writing men and women. You're writing everybody, right? Um, but have I had men who are a little um, mansplainy? For sure. There's a lot of like, and early on in my career, there were certainly more notes about making the female likable. Um, I still sometimes hear that, but now given my, where I am in the power structure, I can say, go fuck yourself. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I empower other women to try to do that, but there will be questions about women's behavior. We were talking about this backstage, that both in front of and behind the camera, we're still up against being likable as showrunners, as directors. That's more of an issue for us than men. What does likable mean? What does likable mean? When it's, when, it's, when it's thrown at you or at other women uh, as a slur. It means that your character probably did something they shouldn't do. And if a guy did it, they'd be ballsy. But if a woman did it, she's got problems. Right, uh, how can a woman cheat on her husband? How could that possibly How could she do that? Happen? How could she be a mother? You know, it's those things. Yeah, I remember, I can't remember what I was developing at the time that Grey's Anatomy had just started, but I made an argument that, because that character was fantastic because she would fuck up. And it was like one of the first times on network TV you had a character fucked up, and they said, yeah, but she's a doctor. She's saving people. <laughs> I was like, wow, oh, that's a high bar. Okay, okay, yeah. But we were also talking about that. That also um, is pervasive not only in the characters that we create, but also um, behind the camera. And that's a really tricky, um, kind of infuriating thing. You know, it's like, uh, if... if if I'm uh, opinionated or um, loud about it or um, passionate about it, I can come across then perhaps, or other women can come across as bitchy or you know uh, a problem. Um, whereas if if a man has those qualities, then like wow, he's really like he is so talented. I mean, he is a badass. You know, so that's a really kind of interesting. Well, you're talking about like you know when you have that you've that first opportunity to do something it's like you, you know we're like oh it's changing that like paradigm of like thank you so much for being here and but we definitely have to it's like this um unfair way that i think a lot of women feel that they have to kind of behave in order to be heard uh so you know that's also a really um a, a challenging a challenging thing on set in terms of commanding uh, kind of a crew. I, I mean, I felt again like lucky enough, maybe it was also my years on set, that when I was directing, I felt very respected. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I was very inclusive. Um, but that's definitely also uh, our behavior is judged when I think sometimes not fairly. Similarly, there's all there's the statistics we hear where when men are watching uh, any any entertain, filmed entertainment with women, they have outlandish ideas of how much female characters are talking relative to how much they're actually speaking. <laughs> Is that something that you that you have in mind, or something that you've experienced uh, as a creator or uh, or as a as a performer, Kim? Not for me, but I was always writing so many women that it, it right. uh, they, there wouldn't have been a show if, if they couldn't talk. 
I've done a lot of book adaptations, so in that way, it's not so much notes that we get from executives, it's more of a fan response. And what I've noticed is that in times, you know, I just did the passage um, on Fox, and in times that we would take a character in the book that was male and cast a woman, everybody was like, what? How could the big bad vampire also be a lady? Like, so that kind of, in that way, it's like you're fighting to get women speaking roles on television, and, and it's not just the network and the studio who are asking you about it, it's also the fans and their expectation of material that you're trying to handle with care, but also, you know, if you read the passage, it's all men. It's all men and one little girl, and that felt weird. So we tried to balance it by turning some of those characters into women. I do think, sorry, to go back to the, the liking women, I think now we can shame people who ask us that. I know I've done that. Um, like, basically like, oh, that notice so 1997 type of thing. <laughs> but compelling, I wanna make compelling women. Um, uh, and I do feel like it, it, the tide is turning, right? Like better things and uh, smells, just like a lot of like, compelling but flawed, but highly flawed women. And, uh, and um, both in, the, in critics and in notes, I feel like that note is like a little bit easier to shame people. At, at least I've used that tactic uh, to be like, come on. Um, I, I just wonder if that means they're gonna come up with a different word that means the same thing yeah, <laughs> to yeah, sneak it by true, you. Yeah. Like user-friendly or something. Because that's, <laughs> that's what I think liking is. They want a user-friendly like pathology, right? They want, it, they want to be able to digest it and, and process it. And I'm talking about you know, the male gaze. Like, and, and that's just what they mean, you know? Like, like you said, like, but she's saving lives. And well, they have to justify it. Yeah. Like with men, they don't have to justify yeah. it. So that's the, yeah. that's the interesting thing. And that's sort of the shift. Uh. And I think, too, there's still a divide between network and streamer yeah. cable. Um, I think those notes do still exist in sure, network, sure. which is really kind of cute. Like it is. It's yeah. bizarrely old fashioned. Yeah. And you're like, do you not know that the rest of the world isn't saying that? But they are still a little stuck in that where in cable and streaming right now, it's, it's really becoming... A, and has been so interesting to see the women that are portrayed and how they're written. I think what's really interesting also and hopeful is I see, um, I have two boys and my 16-year-old, it's like I see, like he'll correct men and women on the, you know, so they're the upcoming generation, you know, and I feel like when it is, they're like, wow, that's so old school, like, uh-uh. Like, and so they'll correct people and they have a much, their, their vision is much more um, open, uh, just, you know, gender, color, so it's, that's really great. I mean, I, you know, part of me gets really excited because I feel like we're making such strides and, and then, you know, I see statistics and I just, you know, like want to jump by. It's like, you know, I mean, last year in 2018, um, I think female directors was something like 17% and that was supposed to be amazing and it's gone down to 16%, which is insanity. Like when you think about Lifetime, their female directors is 78%, which is, inc yes, that's incredible, right? So it's like we need to, um, and I think Gina Davis is doing this incredible thing. She has uh, um, the Gina Davis Institute, and she kept saying, because she kept doing these amazing films that were, you know, sort of female gaze, female perspective, um, like Thelma and Louise, and, um, 
And it, it, they kept saying, oh, this is going to change it, right? This is going to change it. And like, it never changed. So she finally kind of got really scientific about it and was like, you know what? Here's the data. Like, and that is really great because then we can say, no, I'm not, I'm not crazy. It really still is a little unequal here. Like, here are the numbers. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's a matter of a combination. And I feel like it's great that the younger generation is seeing it. Um, but it's also getting those people who are, you know, in the studios also um, more women. It's systemic. So, like, um, there's a, a feeling right now around television. I, I feel it as a um, woman of color um, that we're coming for their jobs. I'm talking about the dominant culture and gender. Um, that, that, so, and I, I've had this conversation. We are. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's um, uh, people of color. Like, so I have, so it's white men that, um, I had this last fight with a white second in command in the room, and he was like, I have a family to feed. Like I, you know, and now it's so hard for a young white male staff writer to get in the industry, and I seriously pull out the Annenberg shit. I'm like, the numbers are not there. You ha you're experiencing the feeling, not facts. Because we, you know, it, it, it's true. And that, that's something the country's suffering from, the feeling that we're, and I'm gonna speak as an immigrant, we're coming to take your jobs, the feeling that there's a caravan, the feeling that, you know, and it, it's sort of, it's um, the way, those waves I'm still feeling in, in, in Hollywood, like that we're, we're, we're coming as a threat. And it's like, I think we're, um, showrunners of color are 7% of, um, of the showrunners, right? That doesn't say that Latinx or Asian, that's like all the colors. 7% of, of that, of who gets to handle those stories. But the feeling is that, you know, and, and it's so, it, I'm just like, pull out the facts. I have them saved in my favorites. Like, <laughs> no, you know? Because they will bring that out and they'll, they'll think they're so woke and that they're such allies. And we're like, you know, no, I'm, I'm all for it, but you know, I have a family to feed. I'm like, no. That backlash is real. That backlash is real. It's not just the men at the top either. I've had that same conversation with male assistants who oh. will literally look at me and say, you know, women are getting all the jobs now. And I'm like, I'm the only woman in this entire floor. <laughs> like, how is that a thing? But it's, that, that frightens me that already they're, yeah. they're just coming right back and saying, well, it's unfair. Look, we're just getting started. I do. We have to blame a little bit some of the managers and agents because I know that I've, like, might have passed on someone and they tell them that, like, the like, it's like, the, it's because they went with a female or they went, and it's like, don't say that. I went because they were in better, you know? Like, but, but it's weird because, and, and that they're sort of turning, turning, you know, turning on us in that way. They need to stop. They just need to tell the truth or think of something else. But even be put on the list. I mean, I think that's also like the other thing. It's like, it, it, I think there's, look, everything happens and moves so quickly in our business. And so, you know, you're grabbing lists and like me, and, but I literally had to say like, when I was directing and deciding on department heads, I was like, there's no women on this list. Like, and they're like, oh, I have to go back and like, I'm like, yes, <laughs> like, yes, you do, go find them. Um, and it's also about opportunity. You know what I mean? It's like, if we don't, uh, if, there's, if, if there's no opportunity, we, we can't get better and, and proficient at uh, that craft that we want to do. So I, you know, I think it's also, it's about like lighting the fire a little bit. I think, too, there's still this perception. So when I started, 
you know, 110 years ago. In, um, I started in sitcoms, and I was the only woman in, a, in rooms of 12 to 13 white guys, for sure. And so it's so funny now that they're like, we're taking their jobs. I'm like, dude, you, I, was, I was like the unicorn in these rooms for so long. But there was also a barrier to entry, and still is, about funny women. There is still that perception that men are funny, and women, like, you know, they help describe what the female character might be feeling. But it's like, you know, we're actually fucking funny. And they, we need to be taken as seriously as men in, in the half-hour comedy space. And you're still in a lot of these rooms, and it's still mainly white guys. And I think that is a whole other, you know, they accept us when we're writing character, but when we're writing a hard joke, it's, it's very scary for them. Well, let's turn to Vita, since we obviously have a lot of fans in the crowd, which has just been renewed for a season three. Yay! Congratulations. <laughs> Do you think that's because season two started with an orgy? <laughs> the world's saddest orgy. That's yeah, what, not a good that's orgy, but... No, it, it was a... Um, I don't know. Listen, we have a third season. I don't care why. Uh, um, the, you know, um, one of my dear friends is Gloria Calderon Kellett, and we, you know, her show's been canceled right now. She's like, it's still sort of fighting one day for at a time. Die, one day at a time. And we, we understand the moment we're living. It's like, well, it looks like we are getting this opportunity, but then it like, she just got, you know, they just ripped hers off. Um, so I... I'm just grateful, you know? I guess it has something to do with, with maybe the sex. I'm very proud of our sex. It's uh, real and messy and um, I guess graphic maybe a little bit. Um, but yeah, maybe that, that orgy helps. So what am I gonna do with season three? <laughs> right, how do you, I will no pun intended, this. top that? Yeah, I'm like, have to go do research. Well, since you said it's, it's a bad orgy, it's messy, this is, I'll throw this to the whole panel, but we'll start with you. Since so much of culture and filmed entertainment has been from the male perspective where sex can be very idealized, like you get a million scenes any of us could name where there's no foreplay, she's ready to go, like, come on. Um, but, but how do you think, it, does that put the onus back on female creators to portray bad sex in order for, this, for the sake of authenticity? Well, no, that fit for that character. Because after, course. she's like, has exoticized herself and let herself, all these like, white people that are going off their molly and they're all like still stinky and like throwing up and still trying to do it, you know? That, that, that it, it's the thing that makes her say, what am I doing? And then starts her season. So it, every scene was necessary. There's no gratuity. Um, I think, and because I did have such permission from the top that to do whatever I wanted, then I could just like, then I wanna, I want to portray this as realistically as I can. So like when, um, in an episode, the two queer girls that are not in a relationship um, put a condom on a, on a vibrator, which is a small moment, um, but it's a very detailed moment and speaks. Also, when the two queer girls, uh, one of them washes her hands, because we fuck with our hands, um, but, but it's a thing that you're like, oh, wait, but it's because not just female, but brown females are getting to brown queer females are getting to uh, handle the gaze and the perspective and the point of view, then it becomes super, super, you know, um, specific. And I think that that's, uh, I've just been really privileged to be able to do it as specifically as I can and do those little moments of, of, of realism and also to take, like, in that same, um, um, what am I doing this? And, uh, <laughs> I was like, that's it. No. <laughs> 
with the with, when she puts the the thing on the on the I know uh, she also takes a long time, at, you know, to to come and it's like we we stay with it and then she loses it. No, there I got it. No, I lose, which is real, you know. And um, I think only there was one little murmur of like, is it maybe too long? And I was like, <laughs> it's just right. And then they saw, okay, well she that is the story of that thing that. They're trying to make her come in a realistic way, yeah. Oh, don't look at me, I am not following that one. <laughs> Pass. I almost forgot what the question was. I did too. That, that to counter idealized male versions of sex that, that female creators have to, or might feel like in order to be authentic or truthful that, that they would also portray sex that's not great. Not in terms of like coercive or anything, just like not great. I think it's important. I think that the fantasy, we've seen a lot of the fantasy. And I think we want to bring all audiences, right? We want younger audiences to tune in. And I think if we keep showing them these super fantastical versions of what never, ever happens, it's setting them up for disappointment. Sex Education was a great show for that reason, because it just explored all that awkwardness. Vita's the same thing. I. I told Tanya this yesterday, that shower scene is perfection because it never it works. It doesn't work. It doesn't. <laughs> that happened on Insecure as well, another female creator, where in they try and have sex in the shower. Queers, though. Yeah, specifically for, yeah. Like, it never so works. So I, I think it's fun, and you want audiences to lean forward and go, oh, I see myself in that scene right there. And if, and if we can tell authentic stories, then they will do that. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, obviously on Sex in the City, we were start you know we hadn't had conversations about sex women didn't i mean women were talking about sex but not putting it on the air and so ours was probably more how you talk about it and what you're looking for versus actually whenever we would shoot a sex scene we would make sure that it wasn't purient like to us we would always um it would be com comedic sex or sex that doesn't work so that it was from our it was from our female gaze of how you look at sexuality but also how you talk about it and we were talking so frankly about it that for a long time people were like oh women aren't writing that show they actually kept saying oh it's gay men that are writing the show because women can't write about women talking about sex with each other with each other yeah I think also showing like the appetite of women's sex do you know what I mean like so that 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 is also it's like Oh, well, women don't want it. I mean, you know what I mean? So sort of flipping that, too. And, and you know, like you said, like in, in one of my movies, um, the woman is the, one, is the one having the affair. You know, so it's, that is also refreshing that we're having now um, the story be told from the perspective of women's view of sex, whether it's, you know, kind of the... the the fucking clunky version of sex, you know what I mean? Or the really steamy, like, hot way women want to have sex. Although they're on Lifetime, so how did you walk the line when you were staging those between, like, keeping it modest for basic cable and also keeping it hot? I think it's like an intention, you know? So, you know, letting it get steamy and... Um, you know, but then you have like little things like no grinding. <laughs> You're like, um, so you know, you but you find you find. I think that that's also. Um, I think there's something sensual. Like I guess maybe making it sensual. 
which is, I think, also really hot. And, and I think interesting, too, because, you know, so often it's about when it's from the male perspective of the woman stripping down and you, the guy is not even naked. You know what I mean? And, like, the woman is, like, full out there. So, um, and, that, and I think sometimes we do that on grays, too, where, you know, the guy is almost the one objectified. And I'm not saying that that's good. I mean, I don't, I don't you know, with anyone being objectified, but in the sense that it's... It's, again, like the female perspective of what we are seeing. Um, and I think that things can be super hot and sensual and not always um, not always naked or, you know, graphic or, you know, so, so bringing that in as well. On my show, we only show dick. We yeah. don't show the other. Like, we show penises. Like, and I do think that that's, like, sort of reclaiming something and retaking back the gaze and being like, well, we've been showing... They've been showing us. They've been exposing us for all this time. So now it's time to um, do it. And also, the, um, that's... that's uh, I like that our sex is not always pretty. In fact, like, we don't have a lot of pretty sex. Like, face-sitting, some sat on her face, and we see it very graphically, you know? And that's not like ladylike and thing. I mean, you're squatting on someone, you know? Like, <laughs> but it's real and, it, it, and it's, it's fantastic when we have agency about like, because I do think that like the, the tropes that have hurt us the most, like at least in my real like sex life, are the like, push up against the wall. And like, and then everything just comes off really easily, you know? And then you're like, and they're, wait, wait, they were running before this. She's sweaty down there. Like, all of it, like, they're not thinking about. I like to think about that shit, because that's what we, you know, my room is mostly female. Like, we all were, like, there's a scene where um, Mari, she has someone go down on her for the first time. She's a virgin, and she, she, we saw her riding her bike in the morning, like, protesting, doing all this stuff. She ends up at this party. She works like, two jobs. She's had she a full day. She's had a full day, hasn't changed that was part of the discomfort that she had, you know, and then also she didn't know how to get on the bed. And I'm like, that's super interesting to me because that's real. That's what we do. You know what I mean? But like if um, and also she's a, a, a curvy girl and we got to see that a brown curvy girl, you know, sometimes they, you know, especially Latinas, they want us to look a certain way. Either we're, you know, serving you or serving you. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's how they view us. And it's, it's nice to like be able to take that away, you know? Uh, we brought up uh, the affair and tempting fate, and this is a slight spoiler, but we find out in the very first moments of the movie that uh, your protagonist's husband has had a secret vasectomy that he did not tell his wife about, and this is a, a point of contention in their marriage, and like they're kind of having trouble because of it. And I can think of so many examples of comedies on TV where a man pretends he's had a vasectomy, and then surprise, he didn't, and then he gets his wife surprise pregnant, including on Gilmore Girls, a show about women by a female creator. So talk about portraying that and what a real violation this was for, this, for these characters. I thought it was just really, I mean, it comes from a book, it comes from Jane Green, and I, what I loved about it was it was really from her perspective, and again, you know, it's sort of like, wait, a woman is having an affair? Like, um, sort of the shocking thing of that, and, and, um, and it, I just thought, I thought it was really also interesting about marriage, and, you know, you talk about, like, sort of seeing the, the realness of it, and there was, you know, we, we have this sort of like glamorized version, Hollywood version of what a marriage is supposed to look like. And so I also really thought an important theme was betrayal. 
and and what is betrayal? So she, yes, she has the affair, and I mean, I'm not spoiling anything. It's in the in the thing, but but also he's had a vasectomy, and they never even discussed it. And but their big plan was to have a third child, and so I thought it was a really interesting element to deal with betrayal and who is betraying and what is betrayal and um, uh, so that's a, a big theme in in the movie and um, and really a, a coming of age and for me it's so interesting because I think women are seen to kind of only have a coming of age when they're like 13 and um, I feel like I keep having them you know um, where we are finding out kind of I, I just like the theme of, of her finding out who she really is not in service to someone else. Um, so not in service to her husband, not in service to society, not in service to her kids. Um, and yes, she does it in this betrayal, but it's sort of like the aftermath of the explosion of sort of what that she did in her life. But it's, it's really also about her um, taking agency over her own life and her own choices um, which might not be what everyone wants her to do or thinks she should do. Um, and to me, that's the exciting thing about the movie, um, is her really figuring out what she wants and who she is, um, is, is really sort of the, the main key thing for me. Well, and the other interesting thing is that the the affair happens very early on, and then the rest of the movie is about the messiness. Like, it really gets into it. I mean, I, obviously that was in the book, but I thought that was, that was uh, the pacing of it was interesting because it's, it's all, then it, it comes about the negotiation and, like, how do you rebuild? Right, like, it's not about the guy, right? Like, normally it would be about, and it's not about, like, her, like, and, like, I don't want to give it away, but, like, it's not about her in the happily ever after kind of thing. I mean, yes, we did also have to cater to um, the network that we're on in a way, but, but they were really great about supporting us in that choice of, of her making choices for her and, and not it being about, again, sort of like the, the perfect fairy tale ending kind of thing. That's a bad segue to my next question. That was my fault. <laughs> but to Joy. Uh, rape happens a lot on Outlander to advance the plot. Um, does that, the counter of that, does that put pressure on the consensual sex scenes to be like sort of joyful and happy and perfect? I don't know that there's a <clears throat> conscious effort to sort of balance like here's some happy stuff, here's some terrible stuff. It's tricky when you're doing an adaptation, something that takes place more commonly in a time period. Um, you know, you can't, you can't shy away from that. But those are definitely the scenes that we talked about the most. We were a predominantly female room at Outlander, which was a wonderful thing. Um, we talked a lot about a season four scene with a young character who was raped and how we would handle that. I mean, we talked like, I'm not kidding for like months about that one scene because we knew it was coming. <clears throat> but again, it's in the material. And so I think the fans have an expectation. If we were to skip over one of those moments, we'd hear about it, right? In terms of the happier sex scenes, you know, Claire and Jamie, it's a challenge to show a marriage that works, where somebody's not gonna threaten to walk out the door. 
And so when they do get naked, it's just a good time. <laughs> you know, we're all waiting for it. We're all rooting for it. Ron Moore's funny because he's always the one who's like, but why? And we're like, but why not, Ron? <laughs> um, and I, you know, when I came on board, Anne Kenny, who's a fabulous writer and who wrote the wedding episode, was, became a mentor to me. And I remember her just very simply, we, we sort of talked about the female gaze and how it's kind of a lofty idea, but in practice, you know, and she said, you know, I just kind of thought like, what do I want to look at? You know, what, what parts of Jamie, can we just move the camera here? And, and it just felt so simple in that way. So I think for the, those of us who came on after her, it was just very simply like, okay, okay, turtle soup which is a sex scene in the book that we ended up doing in the show. And, and if you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. But we all just thought, what do we want to see? You know, what would Claire want to see? That's how we balanced it. And when they stayed on Jamie, when he's having an orgasm on his face, we usually, you stay on the female because it's a male gaze that it was very female gaze. Yeah, that was his first, his first time. It Ever. was great that he was a virgin and she... Yeah was took not, and she undressed him and kind of circled him and took it in, and it was, it was beautiful. Uh, you had your panel, Jenny, yesterday about Men and Trees, the retrospective. Um, and for a show that started so long ago, uh, one of your characters in the regular cast was a former sex worker who's very unapologetic about it. Talk about that decision and how was it considered to be ahead of its time, and was that something you got pushback on? Um, yeah, she actually is. She wasn't a former. She was in Excuse the pilot. Me. She is a hospitality worker. It's Alaska, and there are a lot of men, and, and she's a single mom and needed to make money. And it was... I didn't get as much pushback as I thought I would, I think because um, it was a good idea. <laughs> it was a good idea. But also, she was she had so much heart to who that character was and she was trying to make ends meet. She was a single mom in a town where she, there wasn't a lot of work and it was really important. I mean, it was a conversation I had, uh, a lot of conversations with Suleika who played the character um, also because she was brown and felt like, okay, well, are we basically saying that the only person, um, that we had a couple people of color in this town but that one of the few women is actually the sex worker. What are we trying to say here? And it was, so it was really important to me that we give her um, a lot of depth and a lot of very good reasons for what she's doing and also give her a way out. So actually by the second season, she's stopped doing that and she's working as an EMT. Uh, but we didn't get as much pushback. And I wonder if that's because she was an attractive actress. I mean, I do wonder how much of it was, oh, I want to see that from the male perspective of the, of the network. Well, and it's such a trope, too. I mean, there's like, it's, it's a joke that there, most of the female speaking parts on HBO prestige dramas are like sex workers who happen to be around on Deadwood, on Boardwalk Empire, on any other number of shows. Like, do you, how do you contrast that? Or is that something that when you see a character who's a sex worker come up in future shows, like, how do you compare that to the way it was portrayed for, for her? Well, and I don't want to speak on these other shows because I didn't, you know, they were fulfilling different roles. When I went to Alaska to do my research, these women existed. And I also wanted to portray the truth of these towns and how people get by or don't get by. And so, and also because she was an ongoing character that I knew I'd have time, that's the beauty of TV. We could live with her. We could see her change, grow, make mistakes, um, as all the characters did. 
Uh, this is a similar question to what I asked Joy about a pressure on sex scenes that are consensual to be joyful. As one of the few shows where queer women are having sex regularly on TV, do you feel the pressure to idealize their, or not the, the way those uh, relationships are portrayed? No, I just steer myself by the reality of it. So no, some some of the queer, well, like the the shower scene, of course, it wasn't. And um, no, yeah, I don't I don't feel pressure about that. Yeah. What, what kind of notes did you get or do you get? Like what, on, on that tip, or do you get any? On the sex scenes, never. Nothing, I've, I, I mean, um, just um, when we were editing them, but like by then they've already approved that, right. you know, the amount of penises we're gonna have, the thing, you know, like, but then I did, when I did edit, I had three penises and the, and the, out, uh, the Outlander. See, it's in my mind now. Uh, and the orgy, orgy Outlander. Um, and I was like, I don't need that many people. Come on. So we have one. Because I was like, this is, will just be about these penises. An embarrassment of penises. Yeah, I was like, embarrassment of penises. Yeah. But, but, you know, casting all those and then rehearsing those things that, that we... Um, <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, I was just telling them at breakfast that... Because um, we have uh, this catfishing moment where um, there's a, like a dick pic that gets sent. Well, I had to cast that dick. And that was like... This is the, my producer, female me. We were passing, like, because we were in different parts of, like, set. Back and forth in text. What about this one? There was, like, I put duffel dick in the script. Does that look like a duffel dick to you? I don't know what that you mean by duffel. Like, that thing was so, it, it was just, if anyone grabbed our phone, they'd be like, Tanya, you're at work, you know? Um, <laughs> what are you doing? But, it, but it, it's, it's, it's uh, the way we shoot our, our sex scenes, and I talked about it yesterday, some, um, I'm, really proud of like we um like when i directed the finale um and we were doing that uh, there's a scene in a bathroom so it's a tiny bathroom um my dp was a queer woman my and it was a queer scene right so me queer um my first ad queer my second ad queer everybody in there was a queer woman so like the scene looks right you know it's like a lot oftentimes especially with queer female scenes they're not anatomically accurate like how they're doing they're just like doing something, you know, that looks sexy to somebody, but not, it's not anatomically correct. And that it just, those feel great to be like, that we get it right, you know, which is not always easy or sexy or doesn't look good in the, to the camera, you know. Uh, I also had a question about nudity, since there is nudity on your show and on Outlander. I, I assume this came up yesterday at your at your sex scenes panel, but so you can keep it brief. How did those negotiations go with the performers? And is it, how is it different for, for female and male performers? Well, we, uh, especially in the four leads, I put in the breakdown, it's like full nudity. And then and then I talk to the actresses, because they've never done it, too. I have a lot of, um, beginners is not the right term, but like, the girl who plays Emma has only been a web series before, and now she's a lead on my show. So she doesn't have a lot of experience with that, too, you know? Uh, so they just needed to be talked. And also, I'd only been around, I was on a show called Looking, so I'd been around it, but I hadn't helmed it which is another responsibility, right? So I had to just promise a lot, especially to Melissa, who had been from here from Mexico two weeks. And she was like, they're gonna find out in Mexico that they're, I'm doing it. And I was like, they don't have stars in Mexico yet, so you're fine. <laughs> um, but, but, it, she, but then I had, I had like to make a vow to her that I would like, when I say close set, it would be one monitor that we all, like, who only the people have to look at, and I will make sure no one has phones. She was worried about, stuff getting out, which, because now we're in 2019 and it does. So I just need to be super vigilant for my actors, not just actresses, you know, my actors too, um, and, and just careful with them. I, um, 
because the men sometimes take a lot more of the beating <laughs> in my show, not just the pegging, like it happened, but like the, like... With Baco. With Baco, no, no, pegging, um, oh, no, 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 oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, Baco or um, like first season, you know, when she eats his ass and he had to be like with his knees here the whole time. That was like six, that was lots of hours of this guy. We had to like, it's exposing, this guy's a guest star. Like, you know, we have to take care of him. So, and it's a bunch of women just kind of like, how'd you put that in the breakdown? Yeah. <laughs> You know, for those... Breakdown is when it goes out, it describes the character. I mean, the scene, they have to have the scene, you know, in the audition. So I think they're like, what? Um, but, but yeah, so I, I'm super, I'm a former actor too, and I'm just super careful with them. And also I have like, the fact that we're Latina too, I don't want it to, you know, I want it to be done right. So I don't know. I, I love actors in that way, like actively. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very easy thing to just write in a script, um, you know, she pulls off his pants and you see his ass. I mean, maybe a little better than that. But it's a very easy thing to write. And then when you get to set and an actor says, okay, but can you explain to me why this, why now? Um, on Outlander, Sam Hewen's, um back makeup, he has uh, scars. That takes hours to put on. So we can't just say she rips his clothes off. Also, our costume department, they were very, they're amazing. And they would say to us, look, um, bodice ripper is not really a thing. You cannot rip this material. <laughs> they actually brought in mannequins into the writer's room and we had one that we just called the underwear dummy because it was just dressed in, you know, 1800s underwear and it is not easy to get off. So we had to think in terms of those things. So that helps you think about what skin am I showing? Why am I showing it? What's the most, as you use the word sensual, what's the most sensual part of this? You know, sometimes it's just taking somebody's sleeve down off their shoulder and that, and you're just like, oh, I know where this is going. So it's a balance, you know, it's, it's not enough to just say, we, we just want to see him naked. There has to be a reason behind it. I just wanted to go to something, it's kind of way back when you were talking about, you know, notes from the network. And um, we did this uh, really important episode on Grey's Anatomy, um, episode 19 of this year. Uh, and it, it was about a sexual abuse um, and it was so interesting because the notes that came back, uh, we do a whole rape kit um, and we go step by step and we ask for her consent at each step of the way. Um, and there was two um, places where uh, my character uses like a black light and there's fluid on her, you know, obviously it was semen and um, the notes that came back uh, said, you know, standard and practices, you know, we won't allow it. and blah, blah, blah. And Shonda Rhimes returned the email and said, um, respectfully, we decline, no. <laughs> and I thought that was so incredible because basically she's saying, wait, we show the violence of rape and the violence against women, but yet we can't show uh, sort of the, you know, the reality of it. Um, and it is just really a, a beautiful episode, but, it's, it, but it takes women like Shonda Rhimes to um, have the power and courage uh, and sort of um, insight to lead us to the female gaze and um, experience by, and, but there's, you know, so that was a really important note that she, you know, returned. Boss ass. Boss. <laughs> I have a question for you from your, from your acting career, not about directing. Just going, this is going way back, and you may not even remember this, so we'll start with this. Uh -oh. No, no. A Law and Order episode called Homesick. 
Do you remember that? Do you remember what I'm law, talking about? Remind me of Law and Order. Law and Order. Oh law and Order standard. Like law and Order, not SVU. What was the long time ago. So you play a working mother whose baby dies. They think it's the nanny that has poisoned the baby. It was, was like, like a, circa the shaken baby case. That's how long ago it was. Um, and and so a lot of the the direct to your character on the stand is is about how whether she's to blame for ha having a nanny having a job. It basically shamed my character. Exactly that I could have killed my baby because I'm a working mother. And Patty Lapone was the defense attorney. <laughs> yeah, I remember saying, TikTok, baby. She was like, she was a really, yeah. No, it's really interesting because I haven't thought about that in a long time. I mean, is your question... My are, question is, is that it's, well, two-part. Do we think this is a sh an episode that could happen now? Like, would, would a network put on an episode where this was even part of it, where the idea that a, a, what a mother would be blamed for something that someone she hired did... Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, that was really, I mean, I remember those questions, you know, like the questions were like, what's your, you know, I was on, my character was on the stand and uh, what was your baby's, you know, favorite toy and what time does your baby go to bed? And like the character couldn't answer them because she was a hardworking mother. Um, yeah, I do think that that actually still probably unfortunately exists. I mean, like when, when in this um, sexual abuse uh, episode, uh, the character who was raped says, I, I can't come forward. I will, the, the questions will be like, you know, how much did you have to drink? Oh, you were asking, you know, for it. And so, yeah, I mean, I, look, I think we have come a long way and I, I don't, I don't want it to just be about, you know, oh men and how, I mean, I, you know, I have a, an amazing husband and there are amazing creative men and amazing men who are supportive and my boys are you know again like incredibly supportive of the movement and i think because the political atmosphere that we're in like the women's movement is really um kind of just an incredible force right now and um but i i do think uh as you know a working woman we get a lot of questions like well you're going to direct i mean what's going to happen to your kids you know i mean like you know and Which it's no like, one ever asks men do you know what i mean like i yeah and i i mean I don't think men ever get asked that question. And I do do the juggle. I mean, I've had two kids on set with me. I was nursing during Lipstick Jungle and they would like knock on the door and have like, Leo was like nursing. I'd have my sides to like memorize my lines. I'm like, Leo's still at the bar. I've got one more side to go, you know? And like, luckily I had an incredible executive who was like, I, you know, who figured it out so that I could nurse. But I also had the voice to say, I'm having this kid. And if it means, and I remember the case right before me of an actress who got pregnant and she was fired off a show. And I literally found out I was pregnant and I, had, I was in a pilot and I was like, oh my God, I have to tell them I'm pregnant. But I, I just, there was no way that I was not going to not sort of do both. So I, I definitely think we've come a long way. But I think to your point, I think women uh, have to kind of uh, work double time um, there's Ali Wong does a really uh, hilarious stand-up where she's like she's talking about why women need maternity leave, and she goes into it and it's very very funny and it's to your point. And this is still this is a huge issue in writers' rooms still that if you go in for a job and you say you're a mother, the there will be showrunners who will say, oh, well, you're not going to have time to spend with your kid. They don't say that to a guy who's a dad, and it's the most bizarre double standard that still exists, that women have to prove that they really work double hard 
where a man, you know, and by the way, a man in a writer's room says, I'm going to go home and tuck my kid in. All the women are like, oh, that's so cute. Oh, my God, you're such a great dad. Fuck you. I have... <laughs> and it's not just women saying that's so cute. I mean, it's the guys who are like, dude, that's so awesome. You go do that. It's very... It's, I, I have four kids, and I used to just never say a word about that in any meeting because it's a real hit against you. I was on set and a director's, I just sat down to him for the first time and I, he said, oh, you have four kids. Were they all planned? <laughs> like, do you really want to know? I, but, but I just had the good fortune of working for Liz Heldens, who's a showrunner on The Passage. And I didn't in my meeting tell her that I was a mom. And then the first day I showed up and I said, she said, oh, do you have kids? I said, I have four. And I waited for that holy fuck moment because I get it every time I say it. And she said, if you would have told me that in the meeting, I would have hired you faster because working moms do so much. And I was like, okay, now, now I can say it in meetings, you know? Yeah, but like now, like, like that's exactly like now you can say it. It's so interesting. I mean, I, I think, you know, when I was like 10 years ago or 11, like you it's like yeah. you didn't like in a room full of men, like you really had to be like, I'm not telling them I have kids. You know what I mean? So it's that has definitely changed, which I feel like is great. And I feel like also uh, the women supporting women is such that is a vastly different thing. I think that um you know, there was this real sense of sort of like women, you know, having to go after that one job, you know, and now I really feel that women are so much, they're just so supportive of one another. And that was a really big thing um, that I kept pitching to the writers and Krista Vernoff, who's amazing. You know, she also had the same idea, you know, when, um, uh, my character Teddy and Amelia and you know it became a love triangle and I was like please can we not make this a, you know like woman pitted against woman to get the man um, and so there were like we really created this kind of great thing where uh, it, it was really about us as women and not about and that's also really great about greys it's again sort of female perspective of not like the end result is not to get the guy Question. Answer. If you had the most brilliant idea. I do. What is it? I'm not telling you. No, fine. Let's say you had the most brilliant idea for a new TV show. Oh. Different okay. category. Okay. What would you do? What would be your first step? You have this idea that you dream about. You think about while you're eating, about while you're walking around, about while you're listening to this right now, and all you want to do is yell it into whatever listening device you have. I have the most brilliant idea. This is a TV show that should exist in the world. I mean, I'd probably tell you. But then I don't know. I don't. How would I get it made? You know what I would tell you to do? If you told me. I would tell you, But you're not really you. Like, in this case scenario, we're okay. not us. Great. Just way stay to be with complicated. Me then I would tell you you should submit to ATX Television Festivals the pitch competition. That's a great idea. Yes. That is a great idea, except I'm not eligible. Nope, you are not. Okay, so because I'm not eligible, whoever is listening to this, can you do me a favor? If you have a great idea, it's just, it's sad that I can't make my dream come true this way, but you can. You should submit to the pitch competition. But Emily, will you tell me, I mean them, how to do that? Yes. You go to atexfestival.com backslash pitch. Great. Step one, internet. Internet. And then all you have to do is submit a 90-second video pitch of your idea. 
it does have to be a scripted idea. Okay, no, we Unscripted. are not making reality shows at this point in time. Great, scripted. And you also have to have a five to 10 page writing sample. Okay, check. Two things. So you go, you fill out the form, you upload them. There are very specific instructions on how to do that. FAQs, I'm sure. And you have until January 17th. Just mark that day on your calendar. Right. And then through a series of rounds mm -hmm. with some of our screeners and judges. Like the Blacklist and Sundance Labs and executives and such. And TV showrunners fans. and producers. Not and TV fans. People who make well, TV. But they I are mean, all TV fans. Great. Great. Then after that, we... They, our judges, select the top 10 finalists, uh -huh. and those top 10 finalists pitch live at the festival. And like they, a live studio audience. Yes, like a live studio audience. Oh, and then the winner is then mentored by one of our judges mm -hmm. or other ATX panelists, mm -hmm. and then you get to pitch live to yeah, at you, this pitch point, you live, definitely pitch live but, you pitch but then you get to pitch to our studio network partners oh to maybe like see if they want to buy it uh, the, to then make the TV show <sighs> guys you're so lucky I'm screwed but <laughs> you're lucky because like I'm it's it's I'm guessing it's illegal for me, you said that, right? Yep. It's illegal. For it me is to definitely do it. illegal for you to submit this way. Great. I'll um, find another way. But you guys <laughs> do this. It's much simpler. But if you go to atxfestival.com backslash pitch, all the information is there. But really, the only thing that you have to have is an amazing idea for a new TV show and a writing sample. Yep. From now until when did you say? When does it end? January 17th. Great. atxfestival.com backslash pitch. I'm just asking for a friend. We'll tell your friend. They should go and pitch now. Well, we went on so long, we probably only have time for a couple of questions, but does anyone have them? Sure, right up front. So obviously it's a kind of exciting time to be a woman in entertainment, but the work is not done yet. So what do you see as the responsibility of the younger women in the industry coming up behind you now and as they begin to take um, positions of power down the line? Like what is their responsibility to keep the tide moving in the right direction? I think opportunity, opportunity, opportunity. You know, that's, um, so if you are in a position of power, giving opportunity to other women's um, and, and writing women's stories, so that that it, that and, and also mentorship, I think is is super important. But then also, you know, Tanya Lopez was saying um, over at Lifetime, she was saying, and I'm not talking like not just like oh, and not just like oh, we're going to give them an internship, or we're gonna, we're actually going to give them fucking jobs. So I think that that's also Woo! really important. To piggyback off that, so like if you're starting up. You, seek that mentorship and then there will be a time that somebody could use that coffee with you to be like what do I do how do I get and just make sure you pay it forward because I think holding each other up and doing that this thing it will it, it's your champions that will get you there and then you need to champion too but it can happen at, at a whatever level you know it can happen at school level it could happen because like um just being in a right I'm thinking as a writer but like in a writer's group and giving notes that's huge um, you know, but being supportive or like when I was in the theater, showing up for readings or uh, w w it, there's lots of ways to support when you don't have the power yet, um, but then don't stop it when you when you go up. Keep opening doors, you know. I, I am constantly impressed by the women who are coming in new to the business. I feel like, you know, I came up in a time where you didn't say you were a mom, you didn't, you, you tried to be that role of like, I'm one of the guys, I can hang with you guys. 
And now I'm seeing young women come in and just speak truth to power. And I'm like, oh shit, we can say that. So just keep doing that. Anyone else? Right there. Hi, uh, this is for Tanya. Um, so I'm thinking about the female gaze in terms of queer relationships. So how important is it for you to sort of like show women as attractive to other women, like in those relationships? Good question. Well, that's a, like, that's the thing. I, I, um, I have a very queer brown writer's room with different tastes. Like I like a stud. You know, um, other people like a femme and we just uh, as long as I feel like in the show, we sort of have a lot of those um, those essences it is important because, uh, you know, maybe Nico to me is the hottest ever. We created my my dream yeah. role in that lab that is the writer's room. But I don't know if a, a straight cis male would think that Nico's hot, you know, uh, you know, since flat-chested, doesn't, doesn't wear a bra, like has like um, a Bob Dylan haircut and doesn't wear any makeup. I don't know of that, but like, I know my community and I know that Nico is hot as it. AF, <laughs> you know? So, so I, that, that um, it's just to expand the, the, the notion of attractiveness. Um, also, brown people have not gotten that many chances to be attractive in, in this way, like in a real way. We've gotten a chance to be like, the curvy or the like Lothario or the, you know, but, but so, so that it's, it's super important to like reflect it um, realistically. I know I keep saying that word, but uh, yeah. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your questions. The TV Campfire is produced by Caitlin McFarland, Emily Gibson, and AJ Myers, along with our audio partners, Five Ohm Productions. Mark your calendars. ATX TV Festival Season 9 is happening June 4th through 7th, 2020 in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit atxfestival.com and follow us on social media at ATX Festival. And be sure to check out our episode notes for a very special discount on badges exclusive to the TV Campfire podcast listeners. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. And stay tuned for even more exclusive releases each week.